This is episode 557 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we're faced with either believing God's Word or falling prey to the prevailing, confusing, and ever-changing voices of our culture, many Christians find themselves in a conundrum. They want to believe everything God's Word says, yet they don't want to be called a bonehead by their high school biology teacher or to be deemed anti-science by the pro-vac crowd. So they frantically look for some rules to help them understand what the Scripture says about everything, and then we as believers adopt those rules as the parameters of His sovereignty and try to funnel our understanding of His truth through this man-made grid we've created to help us save face among our friends in this declining culture. Over the centuries, there have developed several methods of biblical interpretation or grids that are used to set the parameters of our understanding of Scripture. And these methods are collectively called the study of hermeneutics, which comes from the Greek, which means to interpret or translate. But not all hermeneutics are created equal. And the method of interpretation you embrace will determine the conclusion you have about both current and future events. So join us today as we examine the ground rules for understanding Scripture, especially prophecy, and its pitfalls as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I uh, have really not been able to look at the situations going on in our world right now. I shared some of these on Tuesday night uh, without seeing that uh, we're like at light speed heading into a worldwide, an area that none of us have ever experienced before. I've shared with you before that from uh, Romans chapter 1, of course, you had these three judgments of God on a society that is crumbling. The first judgment, of course, where it says God gave them up, God gave them over, God gave them up. In Romans chapter 1, you might want to read it for yourself. He gave them up to sexual immorality. We saw that really come to birth in the 60s and become accepted in the 70s, and it's in all the movies and all the television shows and pretty much everything that you pipe into your house today is just full of sexual immorality, even though maybe some good shows, you don't necessarily watch it happening. The next phase, of course, the second curse of God on a culture, according to Romans chapter 1, is homosexuality. There was a time in the 60s and 70s that it was... um, not spoken of. It was uh, um, still kind of a mental disorder. I, my undergraduate degree was in, or my major was in psychology, and in all the psychology books we were taught in the 70s, talked about the fact that, you know, that's it's a mental disorder and we need to help people out of that. And by, you know, if a man ever thought he was a girl, and if a man ever thought because he claimed to be a girl that he could somehow give birth, and if you said he was wrong, there's something wrong with you, those people got locked up. They were given lithium. They were, it was a, it was a, it was a mental illness that was accepted by our, uh, by our society, which leads us to the third phase, which is a depraved mind. I suggest you go home and you read those 24 statements. It talks about a depraved mind, unloving, unforgiving, perverted, and on and on and on, just brutal and backbiters. And that's the phase we're in right now, where our entire society um, rejoices over or, or gathers around the 
trans community because a trans individual goes into a Christian school and kills six people, three of them nine-year-olds, and because he was trans, our society goes, no, 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 we have to, we have to defend the trans people, and those Christians are pretty much expendable, and it's insane what's going on, and every day it's worse and worse and worse. Shared on Tuesday night that I almost believe it's a religion that uh, is designed for this ultimate defiance of God, where that you think you're so much a God that you can change nature by your own mind. I choose not to be who God created me. I'm going to be some, somebody else. And I'm demanding the entire world, including you, to follow me in my mental delusion. And if you don't, you go to jail, you get sued, you get canceled, you lose your job, and it's only getting worse. How is this even possible? And so I've been looking at prophecy and looking at uh, you know, what the Scripture teaches and stuff of that nature, and I, it's my opinion, I've come to the conclusion that we're no longer in the beginning of the end. I think we're in the end of the beginning of the end, that we've moved even further towards... Um, on this great climatic day when Jesus will come and set everything straight, but the period between now and the time he collects us and redeems us or raptures us to himself, a lot of really rough things are going to happen. And unless you are spiritually prepared, now we're not talking about preparing physically, you know, with beans and whatever, all that stuff. I mean, that's something you can do, uh, but that's not the focus of this. It's a spiritual preparation. We need to understand exactly where we are, exactly what the future holds, so we can, we can do what God says, that he always lets us know what's going to happen by giving us words from a prophet or something of that nature. And the scriptures follow that. The book of Revelation and some of the other prophetic scriptures always tell us about that. <clears throat> Daniel lets us know about the future in a really profound way. Part of your homework is going to be looking at a couple chapters of Daniel uh, this week because we'll be talking about those and some other things next week. You've got the book of Revelation and Ezekiel and Matthew chapter 24, especially where Jesus lays out for us what the future holds. You know, how are we supposed to understand where we are now unless we can see where we're headed and where we're headed, what Christ wants us to do? And, you know, there is an expiration date on every one of us. There's an expiration date on our nation. There's an expiration date on our culture. There's an expiration date on our world. And every day that goes by, we get closer to that expiration date. And the good thing is, unless your heart is so tied up with this world that you can't think of anything better than living here, you should rejoice in the fact that we were blessed enough to be in that generation that could possibly see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is more grand than that unless you're so earthly bound that you're, as, this, as people say, no, of no heavenly good. And so what we're going to be doing is looking at prophecy. We're going to be looking at the end times. We're going to be looking at today and forward. We're going to be looking at the events that take place prior to the rapture. We're going to be looking at the events that take place after that in the book of Revelation, during the tribulation period and the great tribulation period, because you have to understand that everything just doesn't is normal and you snap your fingers and it gets really bad. Everything that will take place during the tribulation period has its roots in what's happening today. It's like all of a sudden the big AID 
AI deal you know, kicks in and everybody's talking about this. There's a, there's a prophetic implication of that. We're talking about digital currency, which um, will, um, you know, will, of course, usher in this one world government, which will allow the Antichrist to control everything at some point in time in the future, whether you buy or sell. And so all of this is moving in that direction at a speed that shocks me. I mean, I'm, I've been studying this stuff for a long time, and I used to, used to think that nothing really surprises me. This surprises me, how quickly it's moving in that direction. So we're going to take our time. We're going to go through what the Scripture says so that we can realize that we are living in a blessed time, but life cannot go on the way it always has, especially spiritual. We have to rise to the occasion and be all Christ wants us to be, especially as we see the end coming. And so what we're going to do today, in order for us to even open up these passages, we're going to have to set a couple ground rules so that we're kind of on the same page. And uh, these ground rules basically deal with how we understand prophecy, how we interpret the Scripture, what it actually means to you. If you've noticed, over the last several months, um, we talked about the resurrection last week, and the question was, what does the resurrection mean to you? We don't want the doctrinal answer, well, the resurrection is when all that kind of, no, no, no. What does it mean to you? How do you experience? How does it change your life? And, and every time we've been looking at a topic over the last, I don't know, maybe a year, I've tried to focus it down onto you. How do you experience? What is Christ saying to you? Uh, we talked about meditation of Scripture so it can become alive to you. And so it works exactly the same way as we beginning, as we start looking at prophecy. Now, all prophecy is based on three building blocks. The first one is this. I need to understand the overall framework that I have, that I believe, that I accept concerning the timing of prophetic events. When I read prophecy in the scripture, are those events that have all already taken place? Some of them have, but some of them, are they still in the future? Or have I decided that there's nothing of prophecy that applies to the future, that everything took place in the past? I need to also understand, or, or, do, I, or do I think that most of the prophetic events are pointing to a time in, in the future which the Bible talks more about than any other time in, in, uh, in history? As a matter of fact, one-fourth of every scripture that we have in our Bible is prophetic in nature. You, ha you have to come to grips with that first. Do I believe it's pointing to something in the future, or has it already happened in the past, and so therefore I really don't have to worry about it anymore? Second, I need to know when the millennium's coming. You know, the Bible clearly talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ, where he will rule and reign on the earth. It's almost like a, this is how it could have been in the Garden of Eden if you hadn't have been so stupid to do what you did, and it kind of sets the whole thing up. And, and I need to understand when that takes place. Has that already taken place? And it's already in the past, and we're like post-millennium? People believe that. Are we currently in the millennium now, where we're making this world so powerful and so wonderful and so Christ-like that any minute Jesus, it'll be so much like heaven, Jesus will just step right in and, as Chuck Missler used to say, not as much as you would see. You know, it doesn't exactly look like that's happening. Or is the millennium happening sometime in the future? And if so, where and when and how does that work out? And, and you'll have to make a decision on this framework in order to understand exactly what the scripture says. And then, of course, there's the big debate about the timing of the rapture. 
Does the rapture happen before the tribulation period? Does it inaugurate the tribulation period? A lot of people believe that as soon as the rapture takes place, the seven-year tribulation period begins. But the seven-year tribulation period doesn't begin with the rapture of the church. It begins with a peace treaty signed by Israel and the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. How much time plays between the rapture and maybe the beginning of that? And how does Second Thessalonians fit into this? And can, you, can we lay out a schematic so we can see where we are and where we're going so we can prepare for what the Lord is telling us is going to happen? These are areas that you're going to have to come to grips with. And then the most important thing that you have to do is you have got to determine how you view God's word. And I mean all of it. I mean the teaching of Jesus. I mean the prophetic passages we're going to look at. I mean the commands or the suggestions or the maybes or or however you want to view it. We've got to figure out exactly how we interpret scripture. And that's what we're going to look at first today. The term for that is called hermeneutics. You, know, you may be familiar with that passage. We've talked about it uh, in the past. But over centuries, there have been various accepted general waves or schools of uh, understanding Scripture. And that is called hermeneutics, which simply means to interpret or uh, to translate. But not all hermeneutics are the same. And what people do, I'm really shocked at this, what people do is they buy into a hermeneutic that somebody else has told you exactly how it works, and the hermeneutic now rules or reigns over the Scripture. So if the Scripture violates what your accepted method of interpretation is, then the Scripture is wrong or has to be changed or twisted in order to fit the hermeneutic. It's like man comes to the Bible and lays out for us how we're supposed to interpret this, and you can't violate that at all. None of that is true. You know, in every one of these methods of interpretation we're going to look at, there's a lot of them, we're just going to look at four, The fact is that all of them have some truth in it, but if you only believe that method, then you end up in gross error. Now, just so that you'll understand how easy it is to understand a hermeneutic, uh, the way you interpret Scripture, you have these large global hermeneutics that we're going to look at today, and then everyone has their private hermeneutic. Let me give you a simple one. This book right here. Is this the Word of God? Or does this contain the Word of God? You have to decide for yourself. That's a hermeneutic. I believe that this is the Word of God. What, all of it? Um, Yeah, all of it. I mean, like from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is all the Word of God. Well, well, yeah, I, 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 I believe that. That means that everything in here is true. And the Bible speaks about everything, and everything the Bible speaks about is true. And if something in our culture or something you were taught in high school or college or something that you believe violates this book, is what you believe right or wrong, or is this book right or wrong? It's a decision that you have to make. Most people claim to believe I believe this is the Word of God, God-inspired and God-breathed, and it's true and everything and all that kind of stuff. But in practicality, they don't. They believe it contains the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, when the Word of God violates or goes against like science, then science is right and the Word of God is wrong. Well, like what, for example? Well, like the creation narratives. 
The fact of the matter is, you know, the Bible's really clear on how the world was created, and is it created exactly the opposite of what they teach you in high school and college and science. There's no Big Bang theory and all the, you know, the matter was slung into the universe and started slowing down and just crazy. Something kind of tells us, you know, the earth is created, then sun and the moon, you got vegetation. I don't know how that works. You have a choice. What do you do? What do you believe? You believe God's word and be thought as a bonehead in college and high school, or, or do you believe in science. I mean, if you were a big science guy, I think COVID should have changed your mind on that. You know, but no, I, I, believe, in, I believe in science. What kind of science? Science that the earth is flat? I mean, that was the prevailing view at one time. But then, of course, the Bible talked about the fact that gave imagery in the book of Job that the world wasn't that way. Oh, oh okay. Um, um, but not, and I believe in like in medical science. What, what like um, bleeding and leeches and untested vaccines and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I mean, what is, you can't have it both ways. It's either all God's word or it's part of God's word. And this is a big attack that Satan is uh, using many Christian leaders to attack our church today. Andy Stanley just recently came out, very influential pastor, saying, no, God didn't tell us the Genesis account are just there to tell us who did it. They're not to tell us how it was done. In creation. Well, okay. okay. Um, I don't know if you saw the video clip. As soon as he said that, one person in his church clapped. And he made some comment about, oh, there's the only high school biology teacher we have in here. And then everybody kind of laughed uncomfortably. And, you know, I mean, you have a choice. Um, how are we going to believe? If you believe that, for example, if you believe that, uh, well, you know, I, I know that, I know Paul talked about the fact that the pastor job is a male job. I mean, the husband of one wife, you can't really be a, a woman and be a husband. Well, I guess you can today, right? You know, but back then you, you couldn't do that. And, um, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a male, uh, it was a male position. But you know what? We don't believe that today because that was, that was what that Paul had a prejudice against women. Paul didn't like women. It was a different culture back then. Women are, can do anything men can do today. And, and so, and it's even worse now. And so therefore, uh, I don't really believe that's true because the Bible is not the word of God. It contains the word of God and has to be interpreted culturally, which, which, by the way, is true. It's how they interpreted it when he wrote the letter in their culture, not how we interpret it when we read it in our culture. Make sense? It, it's a hermeneutic. Say another one, simple one. Uh, one of the reasons why we're meeting at this church on Sunday is because the people who meet here meet here on Saturday. Do you know why? Well, because they're Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, but that's a hermeneutic. In other words, there's a, there's a, a, I guess a minor hermeneutic called continuity versus discontinuity. Continuity means that everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament applies in the New Testament unless the New Testament specifically says we don't have to do that anymore, like animal sacrifices because um, you know, Jesus was that final sacrifice. Or you had discontinuity. Discontinuity says that nothing of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, applies into the New Covenant unless it is specifically affirmed to apply to us today. 
We obviously, and the fact we're meeting here on Sunday, we obviously believe in a discontinuity because the church met on the first day of the week. If you believed in continuity, then you would still fall under the dietary laws. You would still fall under the, the, the cleanliness laws. You would still fall under the idea that you worship on Saturday rather than on Sunday. It's a simple matter, but it divides people based on how they interpret Scripture. And unless you have a clear understanding of where you and God stand regarding his word, then as we go through these prophetic passages, you'll say, ah, that didn't really apply to us today. Really? Who says? You are God. Well, you know, I say because I just don't see it that way and, and all that kind of stuff. And so what we're going to be looking at is these hermeneutics. And I want you to know that the method of Bible interpretation that you choose will uh, determine your conclusion about what the Scripture says, about everything. Because you will interpret the Scripture with certain th- mindsets that says, I it can't say this because I don't believe that. That's my hermeneutic. So therefore, it must say this. You'll find that as you, um, as you go through this a lot. There are basically four general... Uh, ways that people interpret Scripture. And by the way, all of these are correct about some Scripture, but none of these are correct about all Scripture. Does that make sense? And a hermeneutic says, no, it's this, this rule book that you put on Bible interpretation that however you interpret it has to flow through one of these that I accept. It's either literal, which means everything's literal. All of it's literal. Well, then that's not true. Because some parables aren't literal. There's some allegories that are clearly stated as allegories. There's some moral teachings in Scripture. There's some examples and some symbols that are in there. And, you know, and are, 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 it's, it's all allegorical. That uh, The Scripture really doesn't mean what it says. It says what we want it to say, so we're going to kind of change it around and spiritualize it to make it look different than what it says literally, because if I accept it literally, then I'm in some trouble, and so I'm going to interpret this Scripture and all Scripture that way. And I want you to know that um, these are the four general ones. Uh, I'm going to show you one in the end that takes the best of these and all puts it together. It's the way that we interpret Scripture. Um, I'll do that towards the end, but let me just look at these quickly if I can. The little interpretation simply means that uh, what we need to do is we need to understand that when what is said in the Scripture is to be taken pretty much literally. In other words, the words and phrases are to be understood in their most common, straightforward, everyday sense. Because when Paul sent a letter 2,000 years ago to the church in Romans, and they read that letter, they would have interpreted that letter based on what the Word says and not some spiritualized changing, morphing over to something that makes us feel more comfortable today. And so this is the, um, the literal account. It means the account of Genesis means just what it says. The earth was created in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. Well, that's not what they say in, in biology. If I, if I tell my biology teacher that, you know, I'm going to get a failing grade. Okay. You know, I'm not sure why you really care what grades you get with your biology teacher anyway. In a school, you probably shouldn't be going to, but that's another issue altogether that we'll talk about later. But I had this account in Genesis. I had the Ten Commandments. I had the teachings of Jesus. They mean what they say. They're they, when he says this is what's supposed to happen, then that pretty much means what's supposed to happen. The problem is, if I take a literal approach to everything in Scripture, then I end up with some um, 
problems. I don't know how to deal with allegory. I don't know. I mean, even in our own language today, um, man, what, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the weather like outside? Oh, it's raining cats and dogs. I know exactly what that means, don't you? I mean, I'm not listening. There's these cats going, meow, meow, they're hitting the ground or something of that nature. The, the fact that we know what that, you can't take that literally. We understand how that works. And in the Bible, there's, there's literal statements and non-literal statements. But if you have a, a hermeneutic that says everything's taken at face value, you end up with some troubles. Then you have this historical critical interpretation, which is positive in many ways. This approach seems to undercover exactly the historical background of what was saying. How would somebody in first century Palestine have interpreted the words of Jesus? And that's the way it it should be interpreted today. It's kind of like with our Constitution. What we want to do is determine, like the Second Amendment. I want to determine exactly what the framers of the Constitution meant when they instituted the Second Amendment, not how we want to interpret it today. The Constitution of our nation, my opinion, is not a living, breathing document that changes over time. It's it's determined to be the final authority for our government based on the interpretation of those who originally wrote it. There's a lot of Bible interpretation that should be done exactly the same way. In other words, how would the people who received the letter to the Romans have interpreted within their cultural setting? And so that's how, um, that's how we need to view it. When it talks about slaves and masters in the book of uh, Romans. We say, well, we don't have slaves and masters today. So what he really meant was employers and employees, because that's what we have today. No, that's not what he meant. He meant slaves and masters. The application is we can apply that truth to us today with um, employers and employees, but that we don't change the word to fit our culture. Make sense? The dangerous one the allegorical um, interpretation. This is when it really doesn't mean what it says. It means some sort of spiritual kind of thing where we're going to change it to uh, make it say what we want it to say. This was popularized by Origen and and, uh, uh, Augustine way back in the 3rd and 4th century. And the reason why they did this was really simple. When the Roman Empire or the Roman Emperor became a Christian or embraced Christianity, he had a really hard time with the sovereign ruler of the universe being Jesus Christ, because he was the sovereign ruler of the universe in his mind of the world at that time. And so in order to make it easier for him to accept it and easier for them to live uh, under Roman rule, what they did is says, no, 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 that's not a literal return of the king. It's just kind of like a, a spiritual return. It's, it's not to be interpreted like he's really going to come and set up a thousand-year reign on this earth. It's just kind of like a thousand-year reign in the hearts of believers because you, emperor, you are the sovereign ruler here. Make sense? And then all of a sudden, you can make the Bible say anything you want. You can twist the Bible around to to fit whatever worldview that you have. That's why we have churches who embrace homosexuality and have drag queens that come in on Sunday and parade around in front of their little kids in children's church. And then we have churches that say that's an abomination unto the Lord. And both of them can take scripture to back up what they're doing. One taking it more literal, the other one taking it allegorically to twist any way they want to. You have to make that decision on whether you take his word at face value or whether you want to twist it a little bit. And then we have the moral interpretation. 
This is what's popular today. It's like chicken soup for the soul. That uh, the Bible really is um, it's just a it's just a good book. It's a good book of moral teachings. And if we follow these moral teachings, we'll be better people, and God will be pleased with. They're not commands. They're suggestions. And so the Bible is nothing more than that. You try to witness to somebody like that, you say, thus says the word of God, and they say, yeah, I know that, but that's just a teaching that I can choose or not choose to follow based on the benefit I want to receive or not. That the Sermon on the Mount is it's just a moral teaching. It doesn't really tell me that you know, I can't divorce my family or my wife and I, I can't do the things that I'm supposed to do. It's just they're suggestions to make me better people. The Ten Commandments are not really Ten Commandments. They're like ten suggestions that I can take or not take and everybody's kind of happy. And can you see the dilemma? Problem is they all have good points. They all... Um, they all make sense. They all have elements of them that we should follow. Does the Bible have moral teachings? Absolutely. Is the Bible sometimes taken allegorically? Absolutely. You'll find that in the book of Revelation a lot. There's symbols and, and there's uh, parables and stuff of that nature. Is the Bible to be taken literally? Absolutely, but, but not all of it. And so you, and do we have to study the Bible kind of in the context it was written? Yes in order to figure out exactly what the writers of the gospel, like the framers of the Constitution, wanted us to really believe. So what you end up doing is you take all of these together, and you try to piece them together, and try to come up with a hermeneutic that allows you to glean the best of all of these, rather than, uh, rather than just piecemealing them and putting them in separate categories that you can't break out of. And so for the last... 150 years or so, the standard hermeneutic, a way of interpretation, the way we do it here, the way I do it, the way I've been teaching you, is called the chromatical historical method of interpretation. Words matter. Uh, what they mean in the original matter. How much time do we spend looking at Greek and Hebrew words to figure out exactly what they say? So I'm going to define this method for you. Um, and this is what the historical, grammatical interpretation is. It means it takes the words and the history when they were written into consideration. I'll just read it. The grammatical historical method of Bible interpretation is a method of interpreting Scripture that seeks to understand the meaning of the text based on its historical context and grammatical structure. I want to know exactly what the words mean, not necessarily how they're translated in English, because there are some problems with that. I've shared this with you before. English language changes. Um, the, if I were to simply use the word mouse to you, what is a mouse? Some of you would immediately see this little brown rodent running around trying to get some cheese in your mind, and some of you would spend eight hours a day on a computer would go, oh, it's that thing connected to a cord that allows me to work. A hundred years ago, if you said the word mouse, nobody ever thought about this. And I've shared this with you before. A classic term is the word gay. You know, in the 1940s, there was a movie with Fred Astaire called The Gay Divorcee. And it meant he was just a happy-go-lucky guy, and he would go to all the parties with the top hats and all that kind of stuff. And that's what gay meant in the 40s. If I mention the movie now called The Gay Divorcee, all of us would go, ah, I know exactly why he got divorced. Because gay means something different today. And so the English language changes the original language that it was translated 
does not. And so that's why you have this need for Bible study. And never in our history is it easier to do an in-depth Bible study than it is right now on the internet. I mean, I had to learn, uh, I didn't learn Hebrew, I had to learn Greek and we had to translate in seminary, a, you know, a chapter of Ephesians and, you know, and all this kind of stuff, really hard with all these books and everything. Now you've got this software, you just click a button and it shows you everything you need to know about the underlying purpose and meaning of a word. This approach assumes that the Bible is the product of its time and culture. Well, it's not a product of our time and culture. And that understanding the historical context in which it was written is essential to understanding its meaning. Exactly. Paul did not tell the um, Paul did not tell the church in Ephesus something that we that they have no clue about what it meant, and you have to wait 2,000 years to go, oh, I, I understand what you're talking about now. They, they interpreted the Bible in their culture. The grammatical historical method emphasizes the importance of analyzing the grammar, syntax, and vocabulary of the text in order to understand its intended meaning, meaning to those, not us, it was originally delivered. And how they understood it is, and what they knew that it meant is exactly what it still means today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is his word. This involves analyzing the text in its original language, which we do every Sunday, as well as taking into account the political, social, historical, and cultural backgrounds of the time in order to better understand the text meaning and significance. It means that if I'm reading a passage and I want to know exactly what it means for me today, it means exactly the same thing. The truth for me today is the same truth it was to the people it was originally written. It doesn't change over time or because our culture finds those things out of vogue. You may have heard this before. Um, guy in the 1970s wrote this. He said, the golden rule for Bible interpretation is this, when you're reading a text, when the plain sense of scripture, what it would mean if anybody read it, makes common sense, then seek no other sense. In other words, don't look any deeper. If somebody 2,000 years ago would read a passage and they go, oh, I know what that means. It's the same thing it probably means for you today. He continues. His name was David Cooper. He says, therefore, Take every word in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts and the immediate context of the Scripture would indicate otherwise. That everything in Scripture should be taken at face value unless the text or the context of where that's written would give you an indication that it shouldn't. I have shared this with you before. You have this school of thought that says that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as in the book of Acts and stuff of that nature, are still active today. And then you've got the school of here that says, no, they're not. You know, uh, only the non-sign gifts are, but all the sign gifts, healings and stuff of that nature, they all died at the end of the first century when the canon of the Bible was completed. Okay, so if I'm reading the passage reading the Bible, there's nothing in there to indicate that God said that you will have this abundant life in Christ and this five-fold ministry until A.D. 100, and then we're going to knock out 
uh, you know, two-fifths of that and no longer have that today, the apostles and prophets part. So it doesn't say that you would assume that was the case. So there has to be some scripture over here to indicate that's not true. Oh, yes. The scripture happens to be the love chapter in, in uh, the Corinthians where it talks about... Um, you know, where there's prophecy, it will fail, and where there's this, you know, this, this will fail, and I see in a mirror darkly, but when I see face to face, I'll know as I've known, and when the, when the complete comes, when the final comes, then everything will be okay. Okay, well, what is that final complete thing we're talking about, the fullness? Oh, it's, uh, it's the Bible. It's, it's the scripture. And so therefore, we've interpreted the complete in that passage, you might want to read it for yourself, as being the scripture. And so therefore, it ended at AD 100, and we built this long deal here where it talks about those gifts don't apply today. Nobody, even you in their right mind, would read that passage and ever think it was talking about a Bible that hadn't even been written yet. I mean, all they had was the Old Testament. They, Paul had just sent a letter that later becomes part of the scripture. I mean, you have to be taught that years later that, oh, that's really what it meant. And so the idea is the fact that when the plain sense makes common sense, that's probably the way it should be interpreted. In other words, if we want to know what the words of Jesus really meant to us today, mean the same thing that it meant to them back then. And so we have to understand the the context in which is written, the historical context, figure out exactly what it says and then what it means, because Scripture, listen very carefully, has only one meaning. One. It doesn't mean one thing to Tim and one thing to me. It has one meaning. Not open to private interpretation, but it has a million different applications. I can read a passage, and Tim can read a passage, and and I can apply that truth to my life in a way opposite that Tim applies that truth to his life. Nevertheless, the truth doesn't change. Does that make sense? And you need to somehow come up with an understanding of how you view Scripture and then how you view your life according to Scripture, whether it's a bunch of suggestions or whether it's the commands of God. And, And the best way to do that is through this grammatical historical method because I want to know what the grammar says. I want to know what the words said back then, not how we interpret them today. I want to know the historical content of that and be consistent with that. And I also want to know the context in which the the, uh, passage is given. Does that make sense? As we begin looking at passages, um, we need to understand this is the way that we have to interpret those. Otherwise, you end up in just Weirdville. Um, I mean, really really strange things. Well, well, I'm, I'm reformed. Well, so am I when it comes to salvation, but I'm not reformed when it comes to end times eschatology, because, you know, most, a lot of people that are reformed don't believe in the actual physical millennial reign of Christ in the future. A lot of them are all millennial today because it fits in a hermeneutic. And so you can't take a hermeneutic and make that the law that's never violated. You have to take the scripture and determine exactly what it says. And not every you know, dispensationalism or hermeneutics or covenantalism or all this kind of stuff, not everyone is perfect to the very end. It's, they accurately describe a section of time, but they don't, sometimes they end up with just weird stuff in the end. Does that make sense? What I'm gonna do in closing is I'm gonna give you some tips. I'm gonna give you just four or five tips that uh, you need to hold on to in order to understand how to interpret prophetic scriptures, which is what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to close with this. First one is this. God wants you to understand his word. 
He wants you to understand even the hard parts. I mean, he didn't write it to make it so confusing for you that nobody could figure it out. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll go crazy by chapter 13. You know, it's, 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 just don't ever look at that, that part of the book. That's not true. God wrote all of his scripture and put it in our hands so that we would read it. And the most confusing, and when I was growing up in a Southern Baptist church, the most frightening part of scripture, the book of Revelation, is the only passage that has a promise that said, you read this, you get blessed. What it says here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, blessed, it's an amazing word, it's makarios, and we've talked about that at great length. It means having the favor of God or being in a state of the marked, marked by the fullness of God. It doesn't mean happy, it means you're happy with things or events or people. It's like a joy that comes from having the favor of God or experiencing the fullness of God. Blessed, that promise that you get, is he who, one, reads these words, two, hears the words of the prophecy and keeps the things that are written in it because the time is near. And if it was near back then with this imminent return of Christ, think how near it is now. And so the, so the Lord wants you to be able to read the Scripture. Therefore, he gives you the Holy Spirit living inside of you, which has promised to take the things of Christ, the words of Christ, the truth of Christ, and reveal everything to you. And so as you're reading the Bible, don't ever say, I can't understand this or it's too complicated for me. Stop and pray, and God will open up that door of understanding to you. I mean, he is our teacher here, not me. Number two is his word has all these things. It has allegories, it has parables, it has signs, it has symbols, it has eyewitness descriptions. Some of those eyewitness descriptions are kind of hard for us to understand until you go back and place yourself in first century Palestine. You've got these descriptions of these things in the book of Revelation, and Paul clearly tells you he's trying to describe them. He's not telling you what they are, he's telling you what they're like. I saw this Thing, which was like this, this locust, and it had like, like a woman's hair on the top, and, and it was like this, and it like had four faces, and it like had fire coming out of its tail, and I'm trying to describe something I'm seeing in the future, maybe, and trying to use his frame of reference to determine something in his culture that he could describe that to. And you will find that Whenever there's an eyewitness description like that, the Holy Spirit always gives us words like like or looks like or seems like to let us know exactly what's taking place. There's all these things given in Scripture, but yet it only has one meaning. And that um, the meaning is, of course, that intended meaning that uh, we need to determine when it was actually given. As we go through the book of Revelation, you're going to find there's a ton of symbols. Well, I don't, I don't know what these symbols mean. Well, sure you do. Half of them are defined by, in the book itself. It already tells us exactly what they are. For example, I've got these seven stars in chapter 1. And then I have these seven lampstands and these, the, the morning star. Is that like one of the seven or is it something different? Chapter 5, it talks about these seven eyes and the star in the sky. And then later on, this large red dragon. I had so many more of these, but I could not fit. I had to put these small ones. I couldn't fit them on a the line on the PowerPoint. Okay, I had about 50 of these. But anyway, so I, I read this side and I go, well, I'm confused. Well, don't, because the passage itself 
tells you exactly what they are. Seven stars are seven angels. Seven lampstands are seven churches. Morning stars, Jesus Christ. Seven eyes are the sevenfold spirit of God. The stars in the skies are fallen angels. The great red dragon is Satan himself. And so you'll find as you're going through here that reading prophecy that many of the answers to the questions you'll have about these symbols are answered in the text, in the immediate text. And those that aren't, you can look at the larger context of Scripture and find what those verses mean. What does the olive tree mean in when Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 24? You have to go back to the Old Testament to figure that out. Why in the world did um, Moses make this, this bronze serpent thing and hold it up where all these people were getting bit by snakes and dying and hold it up? And if all of a sudden you just look at this bronze serpent, you don't have to repent, you don't have to say you're sorry, you just look at it, all of a sudden you'll be healed from these serpents that are biting you and killing you. I mean, th that even seems like an unclean thing, a serpent for him to do. Why in the world, Moses, would you do that? We don't know until John chapter 3. And then Jesus tells us exactly why that happened. It was a picture of him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that all who look upon him. See the point? And so if you can't find the answer in the immediate context, expand it a little bit. Become a student of Scripture, and you'll find some of those answers. Because Scripture always interprets Scripture. And the book of Revelation is like a book of it's like a riddle, and all the clues are found in the Old Testament. Most of the clues are found in the Old Testament. When you begin the book of Revelation, take your Christian hat off and put your Jewish hat on, and all of a sudden it begins to unfold like you can't believe. Next one, got two more of these. Uh, when you get confused, compare parallel passages. Try to figure out exactly what it says, because there's really very seldom ever is everything the Bible says about a topic found in one verse. If you want to start a cult, uh, what you do is you take one passage verse, one passage, and you build your whole doctrine on that. You forget about all the other stuff going on out there that maybe adds things to that or, or amplifies that or, or gives more depth to that, and you just proof text it with just one little thing and build your whole doctrine on that, and you can really end up in error because you have to take the totality of Scripture to see exactly what it says. I have shared this with you a hundred times. I'll show it to you visually here. You know, if I only took the book of Matthew and I wanted to know exactly what Jesus said on the cross, I have one statement. If I take the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, I have three statements. It's only when I take all the, the passages do I have all the seven statements Jesus gave on the cross so you compare these parallel passages. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is only found in Luke. If I'm not looking at Luke, I don't understand that. I don't see that. That's when God's pouring his wrath out on his son. Assuredly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You will be with me, means Christ is there also in paradise, only found in Luke. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Uh, that's a John passage, nowhere else. This is the only passage, a statement of Jesus, that is found in two gospel accounts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have to look at all the text to get the whole picture. So if you're confused as you go through the book of Revelation, we're going to look at parallel passages, the totality of Scripture, to find out what God says completely.
Next to last one, you have to be aware of time intervals. In other words, the church age was something that wasn't revealed into the New Testament time. Daniel had no idea about the church. He had no idea about um, you know, this division. He had these 62 weeks and then seven weeks and then this final week. And, and he didn't understand the difference between those two. He didn't understand the church age. Paul said that you know, the Gentiles coming in in the church age was a mystery that was kept from many of the Old Testament prophets. So as you're reading some Old Testament prophets, remember what's called a prophetic skip. It's the fact that sometimes the imagery they give is like, here's Daniel, and he's looking at prophecy, and all he sees is mountaintops. And if you've ever been to the mountain, you know, I see this mountaintop and that mountaintop, and then this one back here, I have no idea. I can't even conceive the distance between these two mountaintops. And in those, in those distances is the time we're living right now. So just be aware of that as you're going through some Old Testament passages. And then finally... You need to understand the difference between fulfilled and unfulfilled scripture. Um, some passages are fulfilled already. Some passages are not fulfilled. And the classic picture of that is Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes to Nazareth and he asks for this uh, scroll to be given to him. And he opens it up and he starts reading. And he reads all the way down to a certain point, And then he stops and he says this, today, right now, this literally specific scripture that I just read to you is fulfilled in your hearing. If you'll go back and you'll look at that passage in the Old Testament, he stopped at a comma. He didn't stop at the end of the sentence. And what he did is he laid out exactly that part of that prophetic picture that was fulfilled up to this point. The last part of that, look it up yourself, the last part of that talks about a coming judgment, which he's not here to do yet. And so look at even in one statement here, Jesus says, this part's fulfilled, this part's not. Be aware of that as we go through this. Um, I will close with this. If you remember correctly, we have these three um, building blocks that we need to, to try to figure out. The overall framework of how we interpret Scripture, when the millennium is going to take place, and the timing of the rapture. And so I'll either send you some emails this week or we'll talk about it more next week. But uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about is the four main theories about the timing of prophetic events. You have the preterist view, which basically says everything pretty much was all fulfilled in AD 70 when uh, Titus Vespasian came and destroyed Israel and all that's over with. And so pretty much there's nothing left to happen. That happened way back when. As a matter of fact, they even believe that Jesus actually showed up. It will anyway. Uh, that's the preterist view, got the historic view, the idealist view, which is just kind of spiritualized, or maybe the view that these events are going to take place in the future. When it comes to the timing of the millennial reign, you'll find you have these amillennialists who make up most of Christianity today, by the way, not surprisingly, uh, who believe that uh, they kind of spiritualize that it's already happened, it's really no big deal. You've got this post-millennial and then this pre-millennial reign of Christ. And, and then, of course, the timing of the rapture is either pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation, which means that Jesus raptures the church right before the abomination of desolation. So you and I have three and a half years of really bad stuff to deal with. Then you have post-tribulation where he comes down, the church goes up, then he comes back down again, which seems anyway. Um, these are the three primary views we're going to be uh, looking at 
as kind of a framework as we start studying scripture. Um, it's pretty, uh, uh, it's pretty amazing stuff. But uh, we have to come to the conclusion about those events. You do personally. Now, I have rattled on really fast, and I wanted to cover all this with you today so we wouldn't have to talk about it next week. But I do have some homework, and I need you to do this. I need you to read about uh, five chapters of Scripture uh, this week. I need you to familiarize yourself with Daniel chapter 2, which happens to be the image that is created in the world empires, and especially the feet, which is made with clay and, uh, and made with iron on the ten toes. And just be familiar with that. And this rock, not cut from human hands, comes down and shatters all the world empires that have ever existed at the point of the feet, and they all crumble down. And anyway, be familiar with uh, with what happens in Daniel chapter 2. It's a broad picture of prophetic, prophetic history. Then you got to go to Daniel chapter 7, and you need to read about the four beasts, because the four beasts are uh, very exacting and particular about history, much of which has already been fulfilled, some of which is yet to be fulfilled and talks about the Antichrist. So read chapter 7. And then the most prophetic passage in all of the Old Testament, which is the 70 weeks we find in Daniel chapter 9. Not a whole chapter, you'd do good if you would read it, but if not, just verses 24 to 27, where the angel comes and decrees for Daniel the history of the Jewish people. Your people, your kingdom, your temple. And he tells exactly what's going to happen, and he lays this out. I've shared this with you before, that... um, the, um, he lays this out and he talks about the coming of the Messiah and a um, scholar back in the early 1800s calculated that the time that he gave, taking a Jewish calendar, converting it to a Julian calendar, it's 173,880 days and you divide it by the Jewish calendar, all that was fulfilled to the day when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's why he said, if you had only known this day, the day of your visitation, what's about to happen in AD 70 would not happen. This prophecy was fulfilled to mathematical certainty. So look at Daniel chapter, um, chapter 9. And finally, you need to read the Olivet Discourse. You need to read Matthew chapter 24. You need to understand the context. The disciples are coming out of the, um, uh, they're going by the temple. They see this beautiful edifice. Jesus makes some offhanded statement. It troubles them about one stone not laid upon another. They ask him, uh, when is this going to happen? When was the sign of your coming? And when is the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus does not say, to answer number one, let me go ahead and give you that one, and here's answer to question number two. He just lays it all out for us in this wonderful narrative that, uh, you, again, you don't have to study it, but be familiar with it, because we're going to start talking about that next week.